0: It was December of 1939, and the days were dark. No one in England knew what the future held. What they did know was that Germany invaded Poland on September 1st, and two days later, their country, along with France, declared war on Germany. And Coming into Christmas, the days forward were not clear they were dark because they did not know what was going to happen but they were also dark because what could happen was tremendously devastating and in the royal christmas address that year king george the 6th ended his address with words that ring true even today he ended his address by quoting a poem that his daughter gave him sometime the months before then princess elizabeth And she gave this poem to him thinking it would encourage him, and he included the beginning of it at the very end of his address. This is the way he ended the address. I believe from my heart that the cause which binds us, binds together my peoples and our gallant and faithful allies, is the cause of Christian civilization. On no other basis can a true civilization be built. Let us remember this through the dark times ahead of us and when we are making the peace for which all men pray. A new year is at hand. We cannot tell what it will bring. If it brings peace how thankful we shall all be. If it brings continued struggle we shall remain undaunted. In the meantime I feel that we may all find a message of encouragement in the lines which, in my closing words, I would like to say to you. And he quotes from a poem written by Minnie many, many Lewis Haskins, written 30 years before, known as the gate of the year, even though she entitled it something different. She entitled it God Knows. And the last words of his speech were this, quoting of that poem. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God, then shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, Go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. May the Almighty hand guide and uphold us were the last words. Now those are wise words. And there are words that encapsulate what we do when we invite people to come to Christ. They're words that encapsulate our life when we walk out into a dark world. We are walking by faith, not by sight. Darkness should not bother us. Darkness doesn't bother us because we are walking by faith in the one who, there is no darkness, it's only light in him. Now Jesus, when he comes, he comes as the light of the world and he sends us, his people, out as the light of the world. He listens to his father. We listen to him. So it is the word of God that drives all of this forward. Isaiah is speaking to a group of people who are about to come out of exile, but many of them who are doubting. Many of them, as we learned last week, think God has forgotten them and forsaken them. And God not only reminds them through the words of Isaiah and his own words that he has not forgotten them, And proves it. He's not forsaken them. And proves it. But then he reminds them again that they're where they are because of their own sin. And he says, where were you when I came to you? I spoke to you and where were you? That's how chapter 50 starts. So the third servant song comes right on the heels of the glorious picture that God does not forget or forsake his people. The glorious picture that even though we're captive to sin God sends a servant who redeems us from that sin, who frees us from that sin. And remember, as these servant songs have started from the first to the second, today the third, and in a few weeks going into the fourth servant song, we're being presented a fuller and fuller and fuller picture of the suffering required of the servant to provide this forgiveness. Remember, the people are still in exile, they're still doubting. And God says, I'm going to redeem you physically, but there is no peace for the wicked because you still have sin. And the servant songs show so great, and such a great and full picture of what the servant will provide to deal with the sin of God's people. We have the benefit of looking back at the Old Testament servant songs through the eyes of the New Testament and seeing so clearly how Jesus completely and fully and down to every detail fulfilled these servant songs. And the same message is today for us as it was for them in in the day of Isaiah. There were some people that heard the message from God and rejected it, and other people that by faith received it. The ones who reject it are left with no other reasoning in their life except man-centered worldly wisdom. That's why they craft idols for themselves. The people who accept the word of God are able to walk in the darkness because they are following the one who is light. And that is brought to us today. There is a stark difference between the responses to the one who comes. Where will you be today? If you've not yet responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ that Luke so so winsomely brought for us this morning as, as how it applies to us, and he also told us that we have to enter into Christ in salvation before any of that is applied to us, if you have not done that this morning, it's today the day of your salvation, because there will be two clear paths presented at the end of chapter 50. But also, if we are ones who are in Christ this morning, are we willing to walk according to the work of the servant? Are we willing to walk in the same way that the servant walked? Because that challenge is before us as well today. Turn to Isaiah chapter 50. Let's stand together as I read our text this morning. We'll begin in Isaiah 50, verse 4, and we'll go through verse 11. The Lord Yahweh has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear, to hear as those who are taught. The Lord Yahweh has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord Yahweh helps me Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord Yahweh helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like garments. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears Yahweh and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have for my hand. You shall lie down in torment. The grass withers and the flower falls. Please be seated. In these verses we are challenged by a servant whose life reveals five marks of being a disciple. We are challenged by a servant whose life reveals five marks of being a disciple. Now one thing, if you've studied this passage, I hope you have seen that it's kind of broken up for us, isn't it, by some repeated words. Remember, one of the things we want to do when we uh, study scripture is to apply proper techniques of interpretation, proper hermeneutics. And one of those is to look for repeated words and phrases and ideas because a lot of times that will give us the structure of a text and it also may tell us what the most important point of a text is. So I hope you saw when you studied this and read it, and if you've not done that, you just heard as I read it, That this phrase, the Lord Yahweh, the Lord God, and God is in all caps there. So this is Adonai Yahweh. And you see that in verse 4, verse 5, verse 7, and verse 9. So that kind of propels us forward a little bit. And it shows us that this text is about what God, the Father, Yahweh, has done in the servant. And what he will do for us, what his purposes are. So we have both words, Lord, his power, his strength, his might, Yahweh, his covenant faithfulness to his people. So his power and his covenant faithfulness put together in that way, that is a a magnificent foundation from which to understand this text, is it not? We are already grounded in surety, yes? Because this is the Lord, Yahweh, acting. It's also about the servant. It is the third, as I said earlier, the third of the the servant songs. Four, probably five, that we're going to see one more later on. But here in this section, these famous four servant songs, it's also talking about him. He kind of sneaks in, which he's done before, right? Sometimes in this section of Isaiah, we've been reading and all of a sudden we realize, oh, this is the servant talking. And we know that from other verses. 10 and 11 tell us that. So this is all about the servant And it is also so clearly fulfilled in the person and work of Christ that all the way through, I want us to see that. I don't want to wait till the end and tie it all up. I want us to see all the ways that we see in the New Testament the way this passage of Scripture is fulfilled in Christ and all the ways that it applies to us. And we'll do that little by little as we move through. So we are challenged by a servant whose life reveals five marks of being a servant, or being a disciple. The first mark of being a disciple is found in in the beginning of verse 4. The servant is a disciple the Lord God equips to speak sustaining words. Look at where it starts in verse 4. The Lord Yahweh has given me, we know from verses 10 and 11, the me is the servant, the servant is speaking, the tongue of those who are taught. Those who are taught. Now this is the word that tips us off that we're talking about a disciple. Someone who is following someone else and listening to them and being taught. This word is used in the same way in chapter 8. Remember, bind up the testimony and save it for those who are being disciples. The same word is used in chapter 8. Um, So, we are talking about the one who is being taught is the one who is a disciple. Well, to be a disciple, we have to be a disciple of something or someone, right? And and there's always a disciple of someone. Even the most self-centered person is a disciple of themselves. So, in this, this is Adonai Yahweh is the discipler of the servant, who is also Yahweh in Isaiah. But we're seeing them in their roles here, again, in chapter 50. So what does it say? Adonai Yahweh has given me the tongue of those who are taught. Whoa. That seems kind of weird, doesn't it? Doesn't he give me the ears of those who are taught? And he starts with the tongue. What does that tell us right off the bat? The servant is going to speak, right? And what is he going to speak? What Yahweh tells him. That's our role as well, is it not? There is a responsibility that we have as we are taught to teach others. We have that responsibility from Scripture. I mean, Luke, just he's just hammering us in a great and glorious way our responsibility to teach others, right? Because life is difficult, and we are fallen, though we're redeemed. And there are times that we can't see clearly. We can't see the truth. And so we need others around us to speak the truth in love. Well, what do we have to say other than the words of God himself? We can't give them our wisdom. Goodness, why on earth would we do that? We know how many times our wisdom has led us astray. So we listen to the Father's word as revealed in the scripture, fully revealed in his Son, and we speak that to others. This is the same thing that Jesus does, and we're going to see that as we move forward today in a couple of ways that you might not have recognized even before. So... Jesus is listening to the father and God has given him a tongue, the same tongue that those who are taught. So we need to know that when we hear the servant speaking, we're hearing the father's words. When we hear Jesus incarnate speaking, we're hearing the father's words. When we see Jesus being obedient, he's being obedient to the father's words. When we see Jesus carrying out his mission, he's being obedient to the mission that his father spoke to him. We already heard one phrase already uh, when we heard John 10 read, right there in in the last verse that was read in verse 18. So we need to keep that in mind. Remember, we're building a case of how the servant is the disciple, and we're also building a case of our role as disciples, as we are disciples of Christ. Now the other thing I want you to see as we move through here, we'll summarize this at the end, but this, the the servant, especially in this passage, and many other passages as well, but especially in this passage, the servant capital S, the the messianic servant, the suffering servant, he is the one who is fully obedient to everything that God has commanded. The nation Israel, also called a servant, many times in this section, right, especially in chapters 40 through 48, many times, they're a disobedient servant. I mean, sometimes they would obey, but they're a disobedient servant. That's why they are there. So that's why they are in captivity. That's why the northern kingdom taken into captivity never to return. So with this in mind, we are seeing a contrast between the servant, the people, the nation, and the servant, the Messiah, Jesus, where Jesus is the ideal and perfect servant. In every way that the nation was not, Jesus is. And every way that you we're not. Before you came to Christ, Jesus was. And every way that you were required to be like Jesus, Jesus is the perfect one. So we, we're not doing things in the Christian life, being obedient to God so we earn salvation. We're, we're being obedient to God because now that's who we are as a disciple of the one who is the master dis- disciple, Jesus Christ. So we're not earning our salvation, we're evidencing our salvation by what happens. So the first mark of this being a disciple, the servant is a disciple, the Lord Yahweh equips to speak sustaining words. Look at the the second half, uh, the next two lines of verse four. Why is he, he's been given this tongue for a purpose. What is that? That I, that is the servant, may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. And we've already met the weary one several times in Isaiah, right? If we're weary, if we, if we want our rest, what do we do? We wait on the Lord, right? We wait on his work. We wait on what he plans on doing, his will for our life. That's how we are undergirded like eagle's wings. And, and the one who comes to do that isn't tired, and the one who does it through him never tires. He never grows weary, so he comes to speak. Look at what your text says to sust- know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Now, if you're thinking about the life of Jesus, is there a passage of scripture that comes into your mind when you think about what Jesus has to say to the weary ones? Turn to Matthew chapter 11. And you say, Of course. Matthew chapter eleven verse twenty eight, you probably have these verses memorized. Jesus says, "Come to me, all who labor." Your version maybe says, "Weary," that is, that is wearying under the labor of sin. Wearying under the label of self-justification, under the burden of that. Come to me, all who who labor or who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." Now look at what it says right in the middle. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. How do we learn from him? Because he's spoken. We have his word. We we have the words of God. We have the obedience of Jesus Christ. And now we have the one who comes to set us free. Say, "You you want to be set free from your sin? You are weary. You are heavy laden. Come to me. Come to me and take on my burden and my yoke because you can bear that because I bear the load, not you. And learn from me. Jesus speaks a word and what is his word? His word is his work. That's exactly what it is in Isaiah 50 as well. Turn back there. When he says, I'm going to speak to the weary with a word, the word that we're about to be brought is his suffering service. It's his suffering work. That's how he brings comfort to the weary. That's how he sustains those who are, are, who are burdened under their sin because he has come obedient to the Father unto a suffering life and a suffering death so that all who come to him and learn from him, learn from his obedience and are in union with him will be lifted from their weariness of fighting sin. And you say, well, I'm not sure I see that in that verse. We'll go to the next lines, because this is what's developed for us. So the servant is a disciple the Lord equips to speak sustaining words. But the second mark is the servant is a disciple who listens to, to the Lord Yahweh. Look at the, the uh, last set of lines in verse 4. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear those who are taught. To hear as those who are taught. So this is a God-ordained event that his ears are opened. Now what, what marks Isaiah right at the beginning of this? Isaiah is sent out to a people who are evangelistically friendly and ready to hear the gospel, right? That's not who he's sent to, is it? You go and teach so that they don't hear. And the more you teach, the more they're not going to hear. And he says, how long? that's his question how long do we do this so the, the the setting of Isaiah is showing us that there are some who hear and some who do not and how do they hear because the Lord God opens their ears to hear spiritually just like Isaiah's eyes and ears were opened and this marks this constantly presses us forward in the new testament doesn't it those who have eyes to hear those who have ears to hear the the description of the parables in mark chapter 4 the parables are given so that those who can hear can hear and see can see and those who can't hear and see they won't know the truth they won't know what's going on so how will you understand any parable if you don't understand the parable of the sower he says so this is a mark. God is the one who opens up the ears and spiritual eyes of the people. And this is the same thing that is brought to us in the way the servant listens. Now, the servant is Yahweh. There's no sin in him to overcome. Amen? Do you agree with me on that? There's no sin in this servant to overcome. And yet, the, what the servant says about his ability to hear is, My father gave it to me. Yahweh. Adonai Yahweh, open my ears. And look, look how this happens. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ears. Morning by morning, what hymn is in your mind? Great is thy faithfulness. We'll sing that in a little bit, by the way. Morning by, mor- morning, by morning, new mercies I see from Lamentations 3, right? This is that constant ever presence with God in his word so that his spirit opens up the word to us. Luke, I feel like I need to reteach your lesson here. Luke, come up, and say, come up and say what you said earlier. That's about what needs to be said here. If God doesn't open up the ears, we can listen to the word and hear it as a historical document. But we can't hear it as spiritual truth. God needs to open our ears that we hear it as spiritual truth. God needs to open our ears so that we can respond to him by faith. We, we don't just conjure up faith and say, well, I guess I've collected enough faith today. I can, I can exchange it for Jesus now. God grants us that faith. And when he grants us that faith, he opens up our ears and he, he makes our, our, our hearts of stone, now hearts of flesh, so that we understand and obey his word. And remember the new covenant. The new covenant is very clear about this. I will do this in you, the obeying of the word. I will cause you to walk in my statutes says the new covenant. And so if that is going to happen, then we trust that when we're believers, we will do that. Now, that means once we're saved, we're never going to sin again. We're always going to be obedient to Christ, right? No. What gets in the way? Sin. So our sin is dealt with at the cross fully and finally, our inheritance secure, our eternal life secure, but until the Lord comes back or takes us home, what are we doing? We're fighting sin. We're fighting sin and turning to Christ. And morning by morning, when we're in his word, morning by morning, when we're submitted to him, when we're communicating with him through his word and his spirit, he is sustaining us. He is, he is, for the first time, if we're coming to Christ, he opens our ears. And after that, every morning he opens our ears. Because we need that spiritual feeding to remind us that God is speaking to us through his word guided by his spirit. That's why we come and base everything on Sunday morning on the Word. Why would we do anything else? Why would we read something other than the Word or preach something other than the Word or sing something other than the Word or pray other than the the Word and its implications? We do that because it's the Word that we have. That's how God speaks, and it is powerful. Living, sharper than a two-edged sword, separating bone from marrow. This, we depend on God's revelation to us because God graciously did that for us. Even the servant says, he, morning by morning, awakens my ear so that he can hear him and know what to speak to bring comfort to those who are weary. And that's our job. Our job is to morning by morning. Now, I'm not advocating that the Bible says you have to have some sort of quiet time in the morning. I am advocating, isn't that a better time than when your day is over and you've already depended on on yourself instead of Christ all day long? And then you study how you should have depended on Christ? Isn't it better to do it in the morning before the day starts? Remind yourself of the truth of his word. Remind yourself that you are prone to wander without... living and walking by the spirit instead of by flesh. It's it's the morning that is better to do that. The older I get, the more I like the mornings better than the evening anyway. At least I'm awake in the morning. If you are of a certain age, you'll know what I mean by that. The servant says, this is when God opened his ear. And yes, it's just an expression to say day by day by day by day. Now, the the simple and yet needed challenge to you is this. Are you in his word every day? Are you in prayer with him every day? And you say, Rob, that's just basic Christianity. We're the Bible church for crying out loud. We know that. Knowing and doing are different things, aren't they? I hope you do not go days without opening up your Bible. I hope you're not one of those families who brings a Bible on Sunday morning and you have to dust it off on the next Sunday morning to bring it. I hope that every day the Word is in you. You're memorizing it. You're meditating on it so that it has its effect in you. And day by day, God is opening your ear consistently to his will and his way and his truth to feed you in your life. Basic Christianity? Yes. Do we need reminded of it? Absolutely we do. The servant is a disciple. The Lord God equips to speak sustaining words. The servant is a disciple who listens to the Lord. The servant, thirdly, the third mark, the servant is a disciple who obeys the Lord God, the Lord Yahweh. Look at verse 5. The Lord Yahweh has opened my ear. There we hear it again. So I'm listening to his words. And I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Can you say that? That's our hope, is it not? The Lord speaks to me through his word and I am not rebellious. I'm obedient to the word. Now, aren't we thankful that the servant comes and is always, every time, without reservation, obedient to the word? Because that obedience to the word, God speaks. Now think about all that we're talking about in this context. We're not quite there yet, but we've heard it read. We've already been through two servant songs. We know that each servant song is increasing in its description of the suffering of the servant. And that we get to Isaiah at the end of 52 and all the way through 53. That suffering is going to be on in stark display for us. So all of these words and all of this obedience is leaning us toward that sacrifice, isn't it? This is what he did in the Gospels, isn't it? This is what he did in the Gospels. He, at a certain point in the Gospels, and we'll look at one verse in a minute, at a certain point in the Gospel, he turns and sets his face resolutely to Jerusalem, because what's in Jerusalem? The cross. That's the reason for his mission. So we don't want to move away from the context and say, well, this is just the word of God is given to us, or it's, it's the logos, the word Jesus himself, as John 1, 1 says. The word of God in our context and what he is obedient to is the word to go and redeem my people. That's what's in focus for us. I was not rebellious. Now this is the opposite of the nation of Israel, isn't it? The nation of Israel is in captivity. is in captivity because they were rebellious and their ears were closed. Just in the last chapter or two chapters ago, 48 verse 18 Speak, God speaking of his people, his servant, the nation Israel. You have never heard, you have never known. From old, your ear has not been opened. From before birth, you were called a rebel. That's the way the nation's servant is. So this is the ideal servant, the opposite of the nation whose ear is open. He was not rebellious. He did not turn backwards. Now, Turning backwards from the will of God is turning away from his desires for us. I mean, here's the prime picture of that. Think of Jonah. What did Jonah do? God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. Of all nations, Nineveh. And what does he do? He goes the opposite direction as far as he could go. Geographically as far as he can go. And then he gets on a boat at, as far as he could go. And he goes to the very bottom and curls up and goes to sleep. He's going as far in the other direction as he can go. And God is not thwarted in his will, is he? And this is the servant. He does not go the other direction. He does not turn backward. He does not turn away. He walks toward the will of God. He he says of himself, I was not rebellious. Well, how was he not rebellious? Well, this is what's brought in context. Verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike. And my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. You notice the language here? He didn't say they struck me. He said I gave my back to them. What did we already hear read from John today? It's my life. I lay it down and I take it up. And how was that described? This was my father's command to me. John eighteen. John ten eighteen. The father speaks. You will go. You will lay down your life. I will raise it up. Now, I know there are verses that talk about all three persons of the Trinity involved in the resurrection. But that's the mission of the servant as he becomes the incarnate God-man. And we hear the language of the descriptions of the crucifixions in the gospel, don't we? He was spit upon. We're going to hear that. He was beaten. We're going to hear that. He was reviled. And that's all before he suffered death on a cross. So this comes, this comes Word by word, phrase by phrase, truth by truth, true in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he's the one who gives his back to those who strike him. You can look at places like Matthew 26, 67 and 27, 26 and see these same phrases that happened to Christ on the cross. I did not, the end of verse 6, I did not I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Matthew again, Matthew 26, 67. He could have, but he didn't. Why? Because the Father had commanded him. He was on mission to accomplish the redemption of his people. That's what's in view in Isaiah 50. It's what's in view in the Gospels. Now, when we contemplate his willingness to do that, his willingness to be in this world disgraced humiliated the, the one who suffers for being obedient to save those who suffered because of their disobedience now that's an amazing thing isn't it Christ is perfect and without sin and obeying his father when he dies so that he can redeem those who did not obey and were caught up in their sin the complete opposite of the nation servant Israel the exact opposite of that and he did it voluntarily now I had a couple of illustrations about people who have done this given their life risked their life for the life of others but they all just pale in comparison We know that there are times, even according to the scripture, that a man might lay down his life for the righteous, right? But Jesus has and must lay down for his life for the right, for the unrighteous, the righteous for the unrighteous, as Paul tells us. So all of the descriptions to say, now it's kind of like this, but better. We don't even need that, do we? We just need the picture that the sinless one becomes sin for us so that we might receive the salvation that God blessed us with. It's an amazing transformation. It's what sets the servant, the ideal servant, the messianic servant apart from the nation of Israel and every other human being in Scripture. I mean, if you put yourself back in Genesis 3 where the battle of the seeds is promised... And you remember, we spent a whole sermon series going through all the times where if people were looking with spiritual eyes, they might have said, this might be the man. This might be the one that's promised. This might be the seed of the woman that overcomes the seed of the serpent. This, oh, it's not David. Oh, it's not any other king. Oh, it's not that prophet. Because we get hopeful and then there's sin. Well, maybe it's Noah. Noah and his family are saved. No, nope. as soon as dry land hits, sin again. This is the one who's set apart from every other human being. Now, in our life, this is a challenge for us because we may not look at another person. I mean, maybe, maybe we know people who are caught up in false religions where there is another person who is supposed to be the deliverer, the divine one. But we are the ones who are caught up in our own wisdom too often. And we worship our own wisdom as if Jesus had never existed. We think we can save ourselves or or spare ourselves as if Jesus and his suffering and his sacrifice never existed. So getting this, getting our head wrapped around this, that the one who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God is key to understanding what happens in our daily life as we're fighting to overcome doubt, to overcome sin, and every other thing. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ hanging over us and, and working into us so that nothing is more important, nothing is more beautiful, nothing is more sustaining than Christ and Christ himself. And it's all because he willingly gave his life, which is what's spoken of here. Well, look at the fourth mark. The fourth mark of being a disciple, the servant being a disciple, is the servant is a disciple who depends upon the Lord God, the Lord Yahweh, for vindication. Look at verse 7. But the Lord Yahweh helps me, helps me. Now, is that the same thing as you coming along and helping somebody um, who's who's maybe uh, needing some help climbing some stairs? Is that the same thing as maybe somebody who's needing help because they need five bucks to finish off their grocery bill? When we're using the word help here, we're talking about the, the servant's dependence upon the power and will of Yahweh. He's dependent upon it. He's dependent upon it through the work of the Spirit and the Word of God to him and through him as he carries out his mission. But the Lord God, and we're going to see this twice, helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not shall not be put to shame. So the Lord God helps, and there's a therefore. So when we see a therefore, we're supposed to what? Just checking to see if you're awake. Um, and we, we have two therefores. The Lord Yahweh helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Now how would he have been disgraced? By not turning his back, or, or offering his back, right? By not being obedient. That's how he would be disgraced. Because that would have been disgraceful because he disobeyed his father. And it's his obedience in all of his obedience is what makes the work on the cross be pleasing to God for the, for the forgiveness of sins for the people that he is going to redeem. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. This is where we see in Luke uh, this, this language. We see the idea in several gospels, but we see the language clear. In Luke chapter 9, you don't need to turn there unless you want to. Luke chapter 9, verse 51 When the days drew near for him to be taken up, that's talking about his ascension, what needs to happen before he's taken up? He needs to die and be raised again. When the days drew near, drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Set his face. The same kind of language. He sets my face like a flint. And look what happens here. I have set my face like a flint. Why? Because the Lord helped me. The Lord sustained me to be obedient to what he called me to do. Now this helps us understand things, right? The Lord has called us to be obedient. But the Lord helps us in that. And it's not just, well, you do your part and the Lord will carry out the rest of it. It is the only way that we can obey his word is because we are in Christ. Remember, we've talked so many times, and let me just remind you in case this is a new concept, and we'll see this again as we close today, the indicatives and the imperatives of scripture, right? The indicatives, all those statements are what are true. The imperatives, the commands flow from that. We're not commanded to do anything that we're not equipped to do. God equips us, and then we walk in obedience to him through the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel working through our life. And the servant is saying the same thing happened to him. He was not disgraced because God helped him, and he set his face like a flint, and he knows that I shall not be put to shame. Mark that. He shall not be put to shame. In earthly senses, when he was on his way to the cross, even before he got to the cross, he was put to shame. Men would have said that it was shameful what was done and that he was shamed, but the mission was being fulfilled. And he's going to to expand this in parallelism when we get to the next verse. Look at verse 8. He who vindicates me is near. So, the fact that there are no men and no beings who can bring a charge against him and that the father vindicates the son means that all of his work will accomplish what God intended it. Because no one say, no one can bring any charge against him. And we saw this in the courts, right? When he was brought in in those last few days before he was crucified, we saw that no one could bring a challenge. I mean, Pilate even has to just wash his hands of him because he knows he's boxed into a corner. That's because God is at work in his son to carry out the plan that from the foundation of the world, our triune God put into place so that we would be redeemed as his people and then he even puts out the challenge in verse 8. He who vindicates me is near. Now let's just park there for just for a minute. Not long. Remember how many times Israel thought God wasn't near? They could walk in their sin and God didn't see it because he's not near. They thought he'd forsaken them because he's not near. Well, this servant knows exactly that his God is near. That there is a presence of God with his people. And then he puts the challenge, who will contend with me? Let us stand together, stand up together. That means if you have a charge to lay against me, stand up and make it. And he knows it's going to be crickets. Who is my adversary? Literally the master of my judgment. Let him come near to me. The one who vindicates is near. So if you have a charge against me, you better come near too. And there will be no one. Because he is the perfect one. Verse nine Behold, the Lord Yahweh helps me, who will declare me guilty? There it is, all the vindicating and the shame that the shame that will not happen, the vindication that God will do is summed up with this Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment, the moth will eat them up. All flesh will go silent. Because I am doing perfectly what the Father meant for me to do. Now this language is also directed toward us. This language that, that, that where are the adversaries? Where, where are the adversaries? Where are the ones who will put me to shame? Where are the ones who want to contend with me? Turn to Romans 8. Let's just be encouraged that the same help that God gives to his servant, he also gives to us as his believers He also presents it to us in such a way that it is not separate from the work of his Son. Look at verse 31 of Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now if that is true of the servant, Paul tells us it is true of us as his servants, And no one can bring a charge against us because God is the one who vindicates us. How does he do it? He sent his son. And he was approved. He approved of the work that he did because he was the righteous one who died for the unrighteous. He gave himself up to die according to the predetermined plan of the Father to accomplish redemption for his people. And if we are in Christ, that same help, you see how powerful the help is? This is not help just like helping somebody cross the street or up the stairs. This is the help that every person needs to make sure that they are in Christ. And and when they are in Christ, they're in Christ for eternity. And that all of this life, it's nothing. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, it's what? Momentary light affliction, this world. Because the eternal weight of glory, this is where we're heading. And God will be sure to do it because it's according to his will, according to his way. Well, listen to this summary. Just from this text, five ways that... The ideal servant capital s, obeys and fulfills the righteousness of God, where the nation servant does not listening to yahweh nation servant does not listen we 've seen that all the way from their calling all the way through, but ideal servant does we see that in chapters four or verses four in the beginning of five, concerning obedience nation servant does not obey but rebels. But the ideal servant does not rebel, but he obeys, 5b and 6. Awareness of God's presence and care. Nation servant thinks he's far away and forgotten them, but the ideal servant recognizes he is near to help, verses 7a and 9a and all all the text in between about how that's done. Fourth, recognition and trust in Yahweh's ability to deliver. Nation servant thinks he has forsaken them, but ideal servant trusts Yahweh will vindicate him and declare him not guilty. That's why he can go to the cross. He's not going to the cross in futility. He knows that going to to the cross is the fulfillment of the redemption of God's people. And finally, for suffering. Nation servant suffers because of their sin, but ideal servant suffers for obedience and the sins of others. Well, look at the fifth and final mark. The servant is a disciple whose ministry divides the world. And it divides into two categories into those who fear Yahweh and obey his servant, trusting and relying on them even though they walk in darkness, or into those who trust in themselves to walk by their own light, though it leads to torment. Look at verse 10. Who among you fears Yahweh and obeys the voice of his servant? Now that's the, that, that's the question before us. What does it mean to fear Yahweh? To obey him. What does it mean to love God? To obey him, according to John. Three different times in chapter 14, Right. If you love me, you will obey me. Because we can't love him unless he's first loved us. And once he does love us, obedience is what he grants to us. And it is a mark of who we are. It's walking as a believer means that we are pursuing obedience. And the only time we're not doing it is when we're pursuing sin. Otherwise, we're pursuing Christ. So who among you fears Yahweh? What does that mean? Obeys the voice of his servant. Well, if that's you, let him who walks in darkness and has no light, trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on his God. Because God is light, right? First John tells us there is no darkness at all in him. He is light. The the whole idea of faith means that we can walk through darkness, the valley of the shadow of death, as we looked at last week and the week before. We We can walk through darkness and know that we are safe. Even if we die, we're safe in his hands. Because he knows the future. He is not stymied by darkness, even though we are. So as the quote from the poem where we started, put our faith and trust in the one who has no darkness and is not stymied by the darkness and we will have everything we need. It's just the very definition of faith in Hebrews 11. Faith is the reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is unseen. We hope for something and by definition, hope is that we don't have it. And if it's unseen, then to, to, to know that it's real and it's concrete takes faith in the one who will walk us toward that because he's the one who has made those promises. So we're not, we're, not, we're not lost in the darkness if we have Christ. He has overcome the darkness. But the challenge is also that if you decide to do it on your own, there's a different ending. Verse 11, Behold, all you who kindle a fire... Who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. Now, that's, that's a poetic way of saying you want to do this on your own, your own wisdom, your own strength, save yourself, redeem yourself, not face judgment. Well, light your own fires. You may not see the darkness in the same way, you might have light around you, but what's the light? It's your own light, it's your own wisdom, it's your own strength. And if you are going to do that, well, walk by your own light because it leads to a different place than the security and salvation of, of Christ. And what does he say? This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. Proverbs sixteen twenty five says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Light your own fires, trust in yourself for salvation. It is going to lead to Death. And according to the scriptures, that death is eternal torment. Separated from God, but still aware of his glory as you suffer for all eternity. Because your suffering for all eternity will never account for your unrighteousness and make you righteous before God. There's never a point where you will suffer enough that God says, that's enough, now come into me. It'll take forever because his righteousness is perfect and our righteousness is non-existent. So the challenge is right here in verses 9 and 10. The one who trusts in the servant who comes and gives his life so that they would have eternal life in Christ from God, that person walks by faith. That person is the one who walks by faith even in darkness. Oswald Chambers once said the remarkable thing about remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. You fear God, you fear nothing else. You do not fear God, you fear everything because you are never safe. Where are you this morning? Are you in Christ? Are you the one who, even though you're fighting sin, your desire is to be obedient to God. When you walk through death, you are fighting your fear by knowing that you are following the one who is light. You are fighting the fear. You are fighting the, 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 the lack of hope. Listen, maybe you're one here this morning that, that you're saved, but you doubt whether you are in Christ, right? Be, because you have a hard time taking the promises and applying them to your life. You can see them being real, but you can't apply them for, so, for your life, and so you don't think you have the hand of the one who is not overcome by darkness. Sinclair Ferguson in his book By Grace Alone says there are a couple of ways that Satan fires fiery darts and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here but maybe this will help you. He's taking the scriptures about the truth of God and fighting doubt, unbelief, fear. He says fiery dart number one is God is against you. Satan says he's not really for you. How can you believe he is for you when you see the things that are happening in your life? You ever felt that way? I know my heart. I know what my thoughts are. He cannot be for me. Well, what have we learned in Isaiah? He has not forgotten us, and he will not forsake us. Promises, real, true, concrete, and we know now, even in the the, uh, setting of Isaiah 49 and 50, we know now that that is all accomplished by Christ on the cross, applied to us. There's no way that that is not going to carry us. He will never leave us, forsake us, forget us, or any of that, because he will never do so to his son. That's the truth of the gospel that we used to fight against the doubt. And and this is what the the people in in, um, captivity had, right? They were doubting. They were doubting God. I want to believe you, but we've been in captivity since my granddaddy came over here. And now you're supposed to just tell me that just by your word we're going to be delivered? There's a fear, there's a doubt that God will obey or honor his promises. It's fought with the truth of the gospel. Fiery dart too. I have accusations I will bring against you because of your sins, Satan argues. What can you say in defense? Nothing. That's the fiery dart. Well, we have a defense, don't we? We have one who vindicated his son and vindicates us and promises us that nothing will separate us. No fiery darts from Satan, no challenges in our own soul. We overcome those challenges and doubts by remembering the promises of God that if we are in Christ, our redemption is sure and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Fiery dart number three. You can say you are forgiven, but there is a payday coming, a condemnation day, Satan insinuates. How will you defend yourself then? How do we defend ourselves on that day? We don't. Christ is our advocate. Christ is the one who says, they're mine, bought, paid for, sins forgiven, righteousness sustained by me so that they don't have to sustain it, or uh, uh, wrath sustained by me so that they don't have to sustain it. Christ is our advocate. He is our defense because the work is finished That's self-talk every day. We sang about that in Psalm 42 earlier. We talked to ourselves. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Trust in him. Squelched. Fiery dart number three. Finally, fiery dart number four. Given your track record and what hope is there for you that you will persevere to the end. Given your track record of failure, professing Christian, what hope is there that you will persevere to the end? What is that hope Christ's work is finished and my works don't save me. His work provides salvation. Now there's truth to the warning passages like we find in Hebrews, right? For those who are professing Christ falsely, there's truth to those passages. Don't just profess with your mouth and don't even just profess with your obedience if your heart is not turned toward him and that you are not obeying him for his glory and not your own. There's truth to those. But when you're pursuing Christ and you're seeking his face and you are trying to be obedient and memorizing his word and your love for him is growing, squelch the fiery dart and, and, and just talk back to Satan when he, when he attacks you and say, I will persevere to the end because Christ perseveres me. He will preserve me through all of this darkness and all this struggle and even through my sin because it's forgiven in him. He preserves, so I persevere. Well, I don't know where you stand today with the Lord, but if today is the day of your salvation, it's this one who offered his life willingly for your sin that you need to turn to, that you need to surrender your own fires of wisdom and turn to him. And his promise is that he will receive you. It's not a game. You don't have to have so many Monopoly dollars or or so many game pieces It's a willing heart that God grants to you so that He saves you according to His promises. I read a story or an account by a former Army Ranger who was talking about the movie Saving Private Ryan and how much he was into the movie. He thought it was a great portrayal of things about uh, you know a, a band of brothers who, who goes after someone who would be, uh, is the last surviving son um, in a family, and so he needs to be brought back because the last surviving son should not die in battle, and so they 're going out to find him and he gets to the very end of the movie and he said he just exploded with frustration because of its lack of reality because the the, the young man who is redeemed. Caught by found by all these soldiers who were going back to the front to find him. Um, I think, is it Tom Hanks in that movie? I can't remember the movie. He's dying, right? He's given his life to go get this this young man. And the young man comes over and stands above him. And what does Tom Hanks say? Earn this. And he said, I just came undone. Because, because the motto of the rangers since our beginning is, I chose this. In other words, you owe me nothing. I lay down my life for whatever God puts before me, whatever my my commanders put before me. A ranger would never say, earn this. If they said anything, they would say, I chose this, meaning the death that they were about to face. Now, we don't face the death because Christ chose to die on his own behalf for his own glory, according to the will of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that we don't have to earn it, so that we receive it as grace to us. And the grace is also including the ability to walk obedient to him and not turn back. Those of us who depend on Christ, it's such a joy to be able to crucify our sin. Non-believers can't do that. Only believers can do that and to walk in accordance with these precepts so that we are the blessed one that we opened our service this morning with about Psalm 1. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for the indescribable encouragement from your word. And we pray, Father, this morning that your spirit would apply it to us, cause it to grow in us, overcome fears and doubt, We pray that the truth of your word today, Father, would draw men and women under yourself that you see fit to do. We pray this morning that there are those who come to faith in Jesus Christ because of the truth of your word that presents him as the willing savior, who there is no one who can bring a charge against, who is not guilty of any sin and yet died for those who are guilty. So we pray, Father, this morning that you would cause these truths to be alive in us, And that we would be joyful in our journey, recognizing the the greatness of your faithfulness to us. Because morning by morning, we see new mercies from you in Christ. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.